So the title of today's message from Mark chapter 10, you can turn there, is Jesus on Marriage and Divorce. Hot potatoes! Ready? Grab those hot potatoes. Stand with me for the reading of the word. Mark chapter 10, verses 1 through 12. Hey, I'm going to need, I'm going to be running a video today, the sound room, so there's going to be a video. So then he arose from there and came to the region of Judea by the other side of the Jordan. And multitudes gathered to him again, and as he was accustomed, he taught them again. And the Pharisees came and asked him, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife, testing him? And he answered and said to them, What did Moses command you? And then they said, Moses permitted a man to write a certificate of divorce and to dismiss her. And Jesus answered and said to them, Because of the hardness of your heart, he wrote you this precept. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So then they are no longer two but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no man separate. And in the house, his disciples also asked him again about the same matter. And so he said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if a woman divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. Heavenly Father, you've given us, Lord God, this great gift, this sacrament of marriage. A woman, Lord God, who is a gift to us, a man, Lord God, a gift to her. And that, Father God, you sanctified it, and Lord God, you blessed it. And like most things, Lord God, and all things that you have given us, humanity just has a way of screwing it all up. I want to pray, Lord God, today your Holy Spirit would speak to each and every couple in here, each and every individual, Lord God, each and every person who has a longing in their heart to be married one day, that this could be a wonderful day, a wonderful day of building a foundation, a wonderful day, Lord God, of truly getting some deep roots in, Lord God, into their faith that could bring them tremendous fulfillment because it is a very painful thing, Lord God, to go through a difficult marriage and it is even more painful to go through divorce. So, Lord God, bless us today and be with us in all your fullness and grace. In Jesus' name, amen. What does God think about divorce? Yeah, right? It it says in in Malachi 2.16, for the Lord God of Israel says that he hates divorce, for it covers one's garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. Therefore, Take heed to your spirit that you do not deal treacherously. Let me just give you a setting here. Malachi wrote in three, three, what, what, about 500 B.C., maybe 480 B.C., and uh, about 500 years before Jesus. And what had happened was because of Israel's sin, sacrificing children to Molech, uh, the occult, idolatry, God brought the Babylonians and he, they essentially destroyed Jerusalem. They ripped down the temple, and the Jews were taken into captivity. Now they come back 70 years later, fulfilling a prophecy made by Jeremiah, 70 years into captivity, and then they returned. And you see this return in Nea and Ezra. And Ezra. So they returned, and they, they, never, they never went back to worshiping the pagan gods. But the religion became very ritualistic. So it, it was religion without a relationship. So there was, there was no love for God. There was no passion for God. And for that matter, really, there was no passion and love for other people. And there was no passion and love for a man and his wife. 
So when Malachi wrote this, if you know the context in Malachi chapter 2, the priests were divorcing their wives for any and every reason. And that's the context of what you see here now. The setting of Malachi 10, verse 1. Then he arose from there and came to the region of Judea by the other side of the Jordan. And multitudes gathered to him again, and as he was accustomed, he taught them again. Now, he came to the region of Judea on the other side of the Jordan. So I want you just to notice this. This is important. Herod the Great, who murdered the little babies, okay, in Matthew chapter 2, when he died, he divided his kingdom amongst his four sons. So you get a, you get a picture here, uh, the territory of Archelaus, you see it um, in the white, that was Judea, the territory of Herod Antipas, that's what we're going to look at, Perea and the Galilee, territory of Philip, and uh, Philip here in um, it's Iturea. But it's here where Jesus is, he's right here in Perea. And the one who is the leader of Perea is Herod Antipas. Who preached and condemned what Herod Antipas was doing? John the Baptist, right? So John, John, it tells us in Matthew chapter 14, 3 through 4, for Herod had laid hold of John and bound him and put him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because John had said to him, it is not lawful for you to have her. So, essentially, Herod Antipas was shacking up with his brother Philip's wife. He's committing adultery. So it says here, it is not lawful for you to have her. I could just see John the Baptist, right? Because he was kind of soft-spoken and mellow and mild. And he went up to Herod and he said, it is not lawful. It is. I just want to show you a great video. Jesus of Nazareth. And I think it's a great depiction of John the Baptist. And I believe uh, this is likely the way that John put it. He asks nothing for himself. All he wants is to remain poor and naked. He would very much like everybody else to do the same. Oh, no. When the wedding festivities are over, I'll have him preach at the palace. You can hear him with your own ears. He's a very remarkable man. I'm glad there is somebody remarkable in Judea. Herod! Herod! The tablets of the law speak plainly. You may marry the wife of your brother when your brother is dead, but not while he lives. This woman, Herodias, is the wife of your brother, Philip, and Philip lives tetrarch in Iturea. It is written... I have seen thine adulteries and thine abominations. Woe unto them! Wilt thou not be made clean? Send back this woman to your brother. Repent! How can you allow this London to continue? No, no, no. We decided to... You know what it cost John? His head. Sometimes standing up for Jesus means it might cost you even your life. But that's the setting, and that's where Jesus is when he's talking about adultery. Herod is the leader, okay? Herod Antipas, he's the, he's kind of token king. The Romans had him on a leash, but 
He's the, the, the token king there, and he took John's head for preaching against his adultery. So in verse 2 it says, the Pharisees came and asked him, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife, testing him? By the way, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, to, you know, you know this when we study the scriptures, it's always good to use the comparative passages. So this, this passage is spoken of in the Gospel of Luke and the Gospel of Matthew. In Matthew, Matthew adds four words, and he says, for just any reason. So the Pharisees also came to him, testing him and saying to him, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? For just any reason. So the wife comes home with a hairdo that the husband doesn't like. I don't know what you couldn't like about it. And he has the right to divorce her. She burns the chicken. And he has a right to divorce her. Before I was saved, my wife, when we first got married, I'd like to sit down and at night, I was a big guy and a big weightlifter, and you know, I'd eat a pound of steak. Some days I ate two dozen eggs, drank a couple gallons of milk. My father owned a dairy store. But um, I had a 36-inch waist. I wasn't, I wasn't fat. But um, my wife made these Cornish hands. They're, I'm telling you, they were the size of my fist. And, and there was bone. And I looked at her and I said to her, if you ever make these again, I'm going to divorce you. <laughs> but you could divorce her for Cornish hens. You could divorce her for burning You could divorce her if she criticized you. If she criticized your inability to coordinate your shirts with your pants, which my wife tells me I have a major issue with. So... For whatever reason. Now, there were two schools of thought amongst the rabbis. Two schools. It's important to really understand. You'll understand the scriptures better if you look at this. And essentially, you had the school of Hillel and the school of Shammai. The school of Hillel, they were the liberals. They were the progressives. They just make it up as they go along. So it, it, didn't, it didn't matter what the Word of God said. They just make it up. They, they create their own rules, their own laws as they go along. Kind of like, you know what it is, if you look at, they were like the Democrats today in America. No, they were. And then you have the, the conservatives, the school of Shammai, and um, the Shammai school believed that a literal interpretation of the Bible was the Word of God. So when it came to Shammai and Hillel, Shammai said... The only reason you can divorce is, is if your spouse commits adultery. And Hillel said you can get a divorce from your wife for any reason if they just burn dinner. Now, now notice what it says. Which one of you think the people... By the way, let's throw out the word people and let's put men in there. Which one of you think the men liked more? Right? Yeah, they didn't like Shema, they, they, they didn't like Shema. I mean, they, they, they loved Hillel. You could just divorce your wife or anything. And that's what the Pharisees, Sadducees, scribes, and priests believed. So they're divorcing. Just like the priests were in Malachi's day. 
the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the scribes and just divorce her. If she, you don't like something about her, you just divorce her, get rid of her, dump her. In verses 3 through 5, and he answered and said to them, what did Moses command you? So here now the Pharisees say, Moses permitted a man to write a certificate of divorce and to dismiss her. Dismiss her. And Jesus answered and said to them, because of the hardness of your heart, he wrote you this precept. Now, in the days of Moses, you could write a certificate of divorce to divorce your wife. This is an actual from the Jewish encyclopedia. That's a certificate of divorce from the first century. So again, you, 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 you don't like the way she looks. You don't like her hair. You don't, I mean, she, maybe, you know, you, you don't like the way she dresses. She criticized your mother-in-law. You, you could divorce her. Now, if you go back to Deuteronomy, the law, the Torah, you, you look in context of what the scripture said and what Moses meant. Look at Deuteronomy 24.1. When a man takes a wife and marries her, and it happens that she finds uh, no favor in his eyes because he has found some uncleanness in her, some uncleanness. And he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts her uh, in her hand and sends her out of his house. The word there, uncleanness, is erva, and it can be translated sometimes nakedness, but it's talking about sexual sin. If, if he finds some sexual sin, if she ran off and she committed adultery with another guy, or if she came into the marriage and he finds out she's not a virgin, that is uncleanness. That's the condition under Moses for divorce. Adultery, okay, or fornication. Fornication, she had sex outside of marriage before she came in. By the way, if you think about that today, nobody would be getting married. So that's, that's the situation with, with Joseph and Mary. In, in Matthew chapter 1, verse 18 and 19, now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. After his mother Mary was betrothed to Joseph, that's the engagement. They were considered husband and wife, by the way, between, with, with the betrothal. Before they came together, she was found with child of the Holy Spirit. And then Joseph, her husband, being a just man and not wanting to make her a public example, by the way, he didn't want her to be stoned because under the law, he could have had her stoned was minded to put away secretly. That was to write her a certificate of divorce and send her away. Of course, the Holy Spirit explained to Joseph what had gone on. Joseph, being a righteous man, was faithful, became the stepfather. What a great blessing because of his obedience, the stepfather to Yeshua. So Jesus here, again, he points to Moses, which they totally misconstrued and manipulated for their own purposes. And then in verses 6 through 9, he says, but... You always got to pay attention to buts in the scripture. But from the beginning, right? Now he's going to, he goes to Moses. Now he takes them all the way back. From the beginning of creation. God made the male and female. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So then they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no man separate. What does he do? He brings it back to God's ideal divine plan. By the way, as Christians, this is the foundation that our marriages should be built upon. 
number one. One man, one woman. God's plan, one man, one woman. Mark chapter 10, verse 6, but from the beginning of the creation, God made the male and female. By the way, Jesus uh, here again in the Gospel of Matthew says, have you not read? Here they are, the, the teachers of the law, right? They're, the, they're the, 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 the teachers, the scribes and the Pharisees of the law. And he says, have you not read? Haven't you read the, have you ever read the Bible? <laughs> you ever have people come to you with questions or they come to you proclaiming something that is totally contrary to Scripture and you say, have you ever read the Bible? That's what he says to them. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Notice this. He made a man and he made a woman. He didn't make a man and a man, or a man for a man, and he did not make a woman for a moment. A woman. Marriage is between a man and a woman. I don't give a damn what the Supreme Court said in 2016. I believe in what the scripture teaches and also what has basically been the tradition of humankind since the beginning of known history. A man marries a woman, a woman marries a man. Now, notice too, there are only two. There is one man and there is one woman. One woman and one man. There's Adam and Eve. There's not Andy and Evelyn and Adam and Eve. So if you understand this, they couldn't commit adultery because there was nobody out there to commit adultery with. It was just Adam and Eve. And essentially, they were given to one another as gifts from God. Eve was a gift for Adam. Adam was a gift for Eve. So they couldn't, they couldn't commit adultery. They were bound together for life. They were stuck with each other from the beginning. That was God's plan. That's the divine plan. Number two, the strength of the union. The strength of the union. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife. So the first reason, again, marriage is one man and one woman. The second is because of the strength of the union, God ordained marriage. There is this strong union. You leave your father and mother, right? You're no longer sleeping in their house. You're no longer sitting at the dinner table eating with them. You leave your father and mother and you come and you become joined to this man. This man becomes joined to this woman. You sleep together. You eat together. You make love together. You rejoice together. You weep together. You live together every day. You bear with one another's burdens. In fact, the translation joins sometimes you cling, right? Or cleave to your wife. You know what the word there speaks about? It speaks about glue. You're literally stuck together. That's God glue. Proscaleo. It's, it's not, it's not, hey, it's not, let's live together and give it a trial. You know, if it don't work out, it, it, it's not living at arm's length. It carries the idea of two people 
in an unbreakable relationship, connected together, glued together, pursuing hard after each other to be united in body, in mind, in spirit, in emotion. When your spouse is hurting, you hurt. When Carmen was going through surgery, you hurt. Right? We, share, we share the pain. We share the joy. We share the same goals, the same purpose. We worship together. We pray together. We share the same Savior and Lord together. We share our bodies with each other. Our dreams, we're glued, glued. The, the, the Hebrew word is kedushin. That's the Jewish word for marriage. Kedushin, it means a, a sanctification, a consecration. It means something that is very holy, that has been bound together by God. Two people set apart for this very special covenant relationship that is indissolvable. It is an indissolvable union where two people are glued together. They pursue one another's heart, their mind, and they're glued together in everything. Go, go back to before sin, Genesis chapter 2.18, and the Lord God said, it is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper comparable to him. A helper. Two, two helpmates. And they're comparable. You know, what, you know what? Going back before sin, they were co-equals. The woman and the man in, in, in the garden. And by the way, that's where we return to. Right? In the next life. Where they, they were co-equals. Not exactly the same. Have you noticed that? Right? We're, we're different physically. We're different emotionally. We're, we're different spiritually. But you have this person that you're co-equals with and, you know, helpmates. Helpmates. Not trying to control the other, not trying to dominate the other, not trying to manipulate the other, not two people trying to get their own way, but two people who are seeking to fulfill one another, to complete one another. That's the ideal. Sin enters the world. And I'm going to teach you something here. For every one of you who are married or are planning to be married, learn this lesson. It took me a while. Didn't understand it at the beginning. We had our ups and downs, folks. We had our ups and downs and our in and outs. We had our, we, we had our, our, our struggles. Trying to, I mean, women are from Mars and men are from Venus. And I'd be sitting there looking at this woman in bed with me sometimes and saying, God, why are we so different? And I didn't understand this. I, I didn't understand this. One of the amazing and wonderful things about the Bible, you could be reading about something that happened 2,000 years ago, 3,000 years ago, 4,000 years ago, and every chapter of the Bible, you can find yourself in it. There's something, something very supernatural about the Word of God being living that does. You can, you can find yourself in every chapter. You can find yourself at the cross. Who are you at the cross? 
at the resurrection. Who are you at the resurrection? On Pentecost. Where are you on Pentecost? And, and when you find yourself in the Bible and the Spirit ministers to you, it really speaks to the human predicament and the human dilemma. And it answers some very powerful questions. So it's answering those why questions. You know, why, 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 why? Why, why is my marriage difficult? Why am I so unfulfilled in my marriage? Why are we struggling in our marriage? And when you come to Genesis 3, you'll find, you'll find the answer to that. Now, after an Adam and Eve sinned, what happened to them? They fell under what? A curse. Satan was cursed. The man was cursed. The woman was cursed. I don't look at this as, as God saying, you know what, you disobeyed me. Here, bango, I'm going to put a curse on you. I believe that the curse was the consequences of sin. I don't think God is like waiting up there for us to make a bad decision or a mistake so he can just like pulverize us. But we live with the consequences of our sin and they bring, they bring a curse upon us. Guy goes out and gets drunk, driving in his car down the road, he crashes into a telephone and he dies. You know, I've heard people at funerals, they say, wasn't it terrible what God did? God didn't do it. He made decisions, he made choices, he, he paid the price for getting drunk and driving under the influence. And you all know this is true. Look at your life, because there are consequences, right? There are consequences that we are experiencing because of our, our sins, because of our bad choices. So sin, sin comes into the world. And now you have this man and woman... Manhood and womanhood, husband and wife, in conflict, in confusion. After the fall, there's a curse. You say, oh, where, where is that in the Bible? John 3.16. I'm sorry, Ephesians 3.16. Genesis, what did I say? <laughs> Genesis 3.16. It's a little different than John 3.16. Just keep in mind, this is the curse. A lot of people read this and they think it's a blessing. I've heard preachers refer to this verse and use it talking about a blessing. It's not a blessing, it's a curse. Now do you understand scripture in its context? To the woman he said, I will greatly multiply your sorrow and your conception. In pain you shall bring forth children. Ladies who have had children, is there anything wonderful about going through that experience besides the baby actually coming out of the womb and you being able to hold it in your arms, right? By the way, it's like an intense workout. But my wife's not here. She's in the Sunday school today. Like doing a set of heavy squats. Watch what it says here. To the woman, your desire shall be for your husband. Sounds kind of wonderful, right? Your desire. It's romantic. It's Romeo and Juliet. It's Cinderella and the prince. Right? It's um, the little mermaid and her human boyfriend. 
The, the word there for desire, it basically is a Hebrew word that speaks about controlling her husband. In fact, in, in Genesis 4-7, when it says, God says to Cain, Cain is just about ready to kill Abel, but he says, sin is crouching at your door and seeks to control you, possess you. That's the same Hebrew word. You desire to control your husband. You desire to control him, to manipulate him, to have your way with him. That's half of the big marriage problem. Part two. And he shall rule over you. And it's not talking about a husband being a provider and being a wonderful godly leader, right? Being the protector. I believe husbands, a godly husband, four key principles in a godly husband's life. He is a provider. He is a protector. He is the priest of the family. And he is the prophet of the family. It's not talking about that. It's talking about the husband dominating the wife. She's trying to control him, and now he's trying to dominate her. Every marriage difficulty that I have had in my own marriage, and every marriage couple that I have ever dealt with who are having problems, this is why. Now, you can talk about sex being a huge problem, and you can talk about communication being a problem or the lack of communication or money, but I'll tell you something, it all comes back to a wife trying to control her husband and a husband trying to dominate his wife. Why is there a 50% divorce rate in America? 50%, now if you understand what that statistic is, it doesn't mean all people who are married, 50% of them are going to get divorced, but all the people who are getting married this year, 50% of those marriages will end in divorce. Why? Because of Genesis 3.16. Because essentially here, God, again, the perfect picture of marriage is that they're glued together and they're helpmate seeking to complete one another, not compete with one another. They are to be companions, not controllers of one another. Helpmates, not manipulators of each other. Do you get the picture of what the Word of God says, why we have marriage problems? You get it? Took me a while to get it. Didn't understand it. She's trying to get her way. I'm trying to get my way. We're knocking heads together. We're arguing. We're disagreeing. We're kind of ignoring each other. Genesis 3.16. The desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule you. Boom, boom, boom. Number three. One flesh. Mark 10, 8. And the two shall become one flesh, so they are no longer two, but one flesh. When I, when I take couples through pre-marriage counseling, I give them the example of the rings. You see the picture of the rings intersecting each other? Notice they don't overlap one another. 
And notice they're not separated. Independence. They're not independent of each other. And they're not codependent on each other. Where they're totally intersecting each other. And you know what happens in a codependent relationship? You have to make me happy. You have to make me happy. Fulfill me. Fulfill me. No, you need to fulfill me. And two people who are not fulfilled in their relationship with God, their identity in Christ and who they are, who now suck the juice out of one another. They suck the life out of one another. Looking at this person, thinking that they can do for them for what only God can do for them. And they can only do for themselves. So the, the, the oneness is, is a oneness of spirit, it's a oneness of mind, it's, it's a oneness of body. They shall become one flesh. By the way, what is the most powerful thing that we do as human beings? The most powerful thing that we have been endowed with as humans is the ability to procreate. Two human beings... Right, this is incredibly powerful. We come together, make love, and from that comes these little babies that kind of look at it like us. They talk a little like us. They act a little like us. They kind of have some of the habits that we have. We become co-creators with God. That's the most powerful thing that God has given us. And he intended it to be in the marriage relationship. It's an incredible, incredible responsibility. Mega. Grande responsibility, Nelly. It's grande. It's massive. I don't know of a greater responsibility that God has given to me. More so than, than being a pastor, more so than, than anything else, is the responsibility of raising up these children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. To love them, to care for them, to provide for them, to sacrifice for them, to cultivate and teach, and discipline, and protect. So the child is a gift from God. The child is a gift from God. And the child is a sacred stewardship. You understand what a stewardship is? You don't own the child. It's one of the, one of the things that I think has led to abortion and led to child abuse, that people think they own their children. They're not yours, they're God's. You have them for a short time and you raise them up in the way of the Lord and hopefully, hopefully they reach an age of an accountability and they can go out and they can live on their own and provide and, and have children of their own. You hope that happens. And sometimes that doesn't happen. At a Sister here in the church, a godly sister years ago, one day she came to me and she said, my son, 
She goes, my son is at home. He's stealing from me. He drinks. He uses drugs. And I was like, geez, I'm thinking this poor teenage kid, maybe 17 years old. And I, I, I said, you know, maybe we can go over and talk to him and try to get him into a rehab. And she said, he's not 17. He's 42. I said, I'd be happy to come over and throw him out of the house. 42 years old doing that to his poor mother. So hopefully that doesn't happen, right? Hopefully we raise them up. These gifts from God and that sacred stewardship in a loving environment, that marriage environment. 50% of all children in America are being raised in single-parent homes. 50%. Living in households with one parent. That's not what God intended. And... Um, it's dangerous. It's dangerous to the child, and it's dangerous, if you haven't noticed, to the culture. It's dangerous. So ultimately, again, the two shall become one flesh, which is a great, great act, this powerful act, and great responsibility. Last point, marriage is God's work. Mark chapter 10, verse 9. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no man separate. Notice just, it's, it's God's work of joining a man and woman together in holy matrimony. And let no man, let no man separate. What does the Bible say about divorce and remarriage? Right? What are the conditions? What conditions are given in the Bible for divorce and remarriage? There's two. There's no question. Some people debate in Mark 10, verse 10 through 12. In the house, his disciples also asked him again about the same matter. And he said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if a woman divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. By the way, he's not here talking about adultery being the cause of divorce. What he's saying here is, see, divorce, okay... Uh, if a person divorces someone for non-biblical reasons and that person goes out, right, they go out and they start marrying others or they are then in a place where they're committing adultery. It's not talking here about adultery, but in the Gospel of Matthew 19.9, notice, and I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality, there's the condition. And marries another commits adultery, and whoever marries her who is divorced commits adultery. So right there again, if husband and wife get married, she's not a virgin, fornication, he could divorce her. Husband and wife get married, one of them commits adultery, grounds for divorce. Jesus, again, he repeated that in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5, 31 through 32. Furthermore, it has been said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that whoever divorces his wife for any reason except sexual immorality causes her to commit adultery, and whoever marries a woman who is divorced commits adultery. So adultery is, is grounds for divorce. In 1 Corinthians 7, verse 15, I believe you have a second condition. And it says here, if the unbelieving partner separates, the word there speaks about abandonment. The unbeliever abandons. Let it be so in such cases. The brother or sister is not enslaved, 
God has called you to be at peace. So the person leaves with no intention of coming back. I believe that then the person, right, who remains is free to divorce, and they are free, I believe, the word enslaved, they're no longer enslaved, they're free to remarry in those, in those situations. Now, I, I want to just say one thing, because when you come to this point, anybody who has worked with families and couples and sometimes with domestic violence situations, what do you do with a couple who the husband's beating on the wife? I had one couple, the wife was beating on the husband. She was this big 300-pound woman, and he was this scrawny little man. She would get on top of him and slap the snot out of him. He'd come in here, his nose busted up, his eyes busted up, the poor guy. You need to separate. You need to call the police. You could call me. I have some friends that I train with at the dojo. A couple of them are ex-special forces. We'd, come, we'd be happy to come over and give them a counseling session. By the way, let me say this to the men here. You never... You never, you never raise your hand to a woman. I don't care if she's angry at you and she comes over and starts to shake you. You run away. You don't raise your hand at a woman. By the way, because you can't win. You don't win in the eyes of God and you don't win in the eyes of the legal system. It's wrong. You got a problem? Go get help. Go get help. But those are the two grounds. Now, the rest of the story. Do you want to hear the rest of the story? Or should I just let you go? Okay. This is the rest of the story. Verse 10. His disciples said to him, If such is the case of the man with his wife, it is better not to marry. <laughs> if we can't divorce them because we don't like their hairdo or their cooking or anything else, she doesn't quite fulfill us in the bedroom. And that means we got to stick it out and stay with her and be glued together. Maybe we'd be better off and not to marry. That's their response. Now, I want to give you something here. Keys to a fulfilling marriage for fallen people. Keys to a fulfilling marriage for fallen people. Three final words here. We're going to go to Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18 through 28. Here's God's, this is God's plan for a fulfilling marriage for people with fallen natures. If you don't have a fallen nature, you can leave now. But as for me, I know my nature is fallen. Verse 18. Do not be drunk with wine in which is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. Did you, have you heard a message on that verse anytime recently? Right? Don't be drunk with wine. The idea is you come under its influence, it controls you, you say stupid things, you do stupid things, but be filled with the Spirit. Be under the influence of the Spirit. If you are under the influence of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, self-control, you're going to be looking to fulfill your spouse and she will be looking to fulfill you. You will not be looking to control your spouse. You will be looking to be, again, that helpmate to your spouse if you're filled with the Spirit. Speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making a melody in your heart to the Lord, 
giving thanks always for all things to God. The Father, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, notice verse 21, submitting to one another in the fear of God. Mutual submission. You want to tell you something? Have you ever seen unbelievers who have very fulfilling marriages? Unbelievers who have for my mother and father. They were not believers until the end of their lives. And I'll tell you, they stuck together for 68 years. I never saw them argue. I know they did. They had their little... (laughs) One time my father was making potatoes for Thanksgiving. I don't know what he did to them, but my mother got mad at him. And it was about the argument about the potatoes. I mean, that's, that's like the seriousness of my mother and father. But they didn't know the Lord until later in life. You know what they did? They had an ability to submit to each other. They, they weren't filled with the Spirit. But they submitted to each other and sought to fulfill each other and serve each other and care for each other. So I have seen marriages outside of, see, I've seen marriages outside of the church by unbelievers that are ten times better than marriages that I've seen inside the church. How do you figure? Verse 22. See, it's good to focus on verse 21. Because if we go to verse 22, a lot of times the women freak out. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. Remember, there's mutual submission. For the husband is the head of the wife, as also Christ is the head of the church, and he is the Savior of the body. Therefore, just as the church is subject to Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. And I've had the rednecks come in here with their wives and sit in front of me and say, Look, she's not submitting to me. Are you submitting to her? Are you seeking to control her or fulfill her? Are you being a helpmate to her or you're seeking to lord it over her? See, in verse 25, husbands love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her. That's the submission of the husband. <laughs> In fact, the greater responsibility lies in the part of the husband. Ladies, tell me this. If you had a man in your life who loved you the way Jesus loves the church, would you have a problem submitting to him? Is there any woman here today who would have a problem submitting to their husband if he loved you the way Jesus loves us? Look, look that he might, verse 26, sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word, that he might present her to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish, so husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. You see, a man, he makes his wife beautiful. You make her beautiful, outside and inside. Fulfilling and bringing meaning. Would you have a problem submitting to a man who is doing that for you? No. I've never seen a woman say yes. So when the redneck is sitting there going, she's not submitting to me, I'm like, are you loving her the way Jesus loves the church? All of a sudden things get quiet. Because if you're loving her with that sacrificial Christ-like love, 
if you won't have a problem submitting to you. And again, it all comes back to verse 22. It's mutual submission. The only way, really, folks, the only way you could ever love your wife the way Christ loved the church or submit to your husband the way the true church submits to Jesus is by being filled with the Spirit and being under his influence. You get right with God. You get two people having problems, two people experiencing Genesis 3.16, not John 3.16, Genesis 3.16, right? They're, they're con- trying to control each other. They're trying to manipulate each other. I'm not, not doing what I wanted to do. He's not doing what I want him to do. And then they begin to really submit to God, come under the influence of the Spirit, and they begin to submit to each other. She finds it very easy because he's loving her. He's loving her with that love of Christ. That's God's remedy for a people who have fallen, who can have a fulfilling marriage. And I hope you understand what I'm saying to you today. I've been there. I've been there with the arguments. I've been there with the marriage problems, with the difficulties. Okay, I could, uh, I've been there. Been married now just about 40 years. I wish I knew this. I wish I knew this at the beginning because I didn't. And I had all kinds of reasons why. But it all came down to the sinful nature. I'm trying to control her. She's trying to control me. And when we really come under the control of the Holy Spirit, beautiful. And the marriage can really be a wonderful thing. Take it to your heart. Take it into your heart. Because I'll tell you something. There ain't nothing worse than being in an unhappy marriage. And there ain't nothing worse than divorce. It is just painful. It's hard for me to, 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 to go through it, and I've gone through it with people through the years. It's just painful. Amen? Amen? Let's bow our heads. We'll close in prayer, and then we're going to take the Lord's Supper. We'll share the Lord's Supper. Lord God, now here's just a wonderful, Lord God, word from you. Lord, you want the best for your children. You want us to have, Lord God, meaningful and fulfilling relationships with you. And you want us, Lord God, to have meaningful and fulfilling relationships with our spouse. You want us to have meaningful and fulfilling relationships with our children. And you want us to have meaningful and fulfilling relationships with each other. Teach us your ways, O Lord. May we truly, Lord God, take Genesis 3.16 to heart, Mark chapter uh, 10, Lord God, to heart, Ephesians chapter 5 to heart. May we learn your way, Lord God. May we really, Lord God, leave here truly seeking to make this a reality in our lives. We pray this all and we ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. You um, You can take the cup and the bread
You could stand if you'd like. You could sit. No matter. The apostles were actually reclining. So if you want to recline, just don't bump into anybody. For on that night, the Lord Jesus, he took the bread and he broke it. And he gave it to his disciples and he said to them, Take this, all of you, and eat this, for this is my body. He said, Do this in remembrance of me. And let's all partake of the broken body of our Lord. And then the Lord Jesus, he took the cup, he gave it to his disciples, and he said, take this, all of you, and drink this, for this is my blood, the blood of the new and everlasting covenant. He said, do this in remembrance of me. And your blood is your life, Lord God, that you poured out for us on the cross 2,000 years ago in Golgotha. Lord God, on this day, we drink your life into ourselves. May it renew us, rejuvenate us, revitalize us. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to open the altars. If you're married, you're engaged, you're thinking about getting married, and you'd like to come up, just kind of seal what God did here today in your lives, come up. Kneel at the altar, stand at the altar with your spouse or your spouse-to-be, and let the Lord's blessing come down upon you. Okay? Change. 
want to extend an invitation to you 